Well, please remain standing and let's take our Bibles out again. This time we turn to the New Testament, to Mark's Gospel, and this morning to chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter as we have a bit of an introduction this morning. I'm going to read here uh, clearly, hopefully, carefully, and slowly as we read through this chapter that we will begin looking at this morning. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been, seen, been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words. Lord, we pray that as we begin to take a look at these things, that you will bless us. We pray that you will help us in our weakness, weakness of mind, weakness of trust at times. We pray that you will help us. We pray that you would help he who speaks this morning. We pray that you would bless those who hear. May we have ears to hear what your Spirit says to us this morning and in the following Sundays as we look at this, uh, this passage. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you may be seated. About 400 years before these words that we have read were spoken, God, through the prophet Malachi, prophesied that he would send a messenger to prepare a way, and then he said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's in Malachi 3.1. An amazing and perhaps the clearest statement in the Old Testament of the coming first of John the Baptist and then the coming of the messenger of the covenant, the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God who has come in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who is called the Christ, who is called the Messiah. We have read and we have studied Uh, From the beginning of Mark's gospel, the public ministry of Jesus, how he has proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God, how he has taught the people God's word and has done great and mighty works, all demonstrating his, his deity and his authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, over sin, and even over death. And now, as we have last week left chapter 12, Jesus has concluded that public aspect of his ministry. 
in chapter 14, yet to come, and beyond that, all of this will come to a climax as Jesus' enemies will advance their plot and eventually fulfill their plot to arrest and ultimately to kill Jesus. And in between is chapter 13 of Mark. Before we dive into these words, which I'm sure just the reading of which has piqued many of your interest, before we dive into the text, I want to take a little bit of time to introduce it to you. This teaching by Jesus here, recorded by Mark, uh, as I said, marks the conclusion of his public ministry. It also marks the conclusion of that this busy day, this busy Tuesday of Passion Week that we have uh, talked about. This is the last of those events. This is the end of the day on Tuesday. This passage also records the longest single teaching of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Matthew and Luke, along with Mark, uh, record this teaching, uh, with all of them, of course, as usual, adding uh, more or fewer details, focusing on certain things. Um, Matthew and Mark, a little bit different than, than as what Mark includes, not, not with any discrepancy, not with any um, problems between the text, no contradictions, just different views of what has taken place. The beginning of the chapter takes place as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. But the bulk of the chapter records Jesus' teaching, which takes place across the Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives, just right to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And therefore, this chapter, this teaching, is known as the Olivet Discourse. Not only is this the longest teaching of Jesus recorded, but it is also one of the, if not the, most debated, disagreed on, and difficult passages in the Gospels to handle. And the reason for that is that Jesus' teaching here, as an answer to the question that's put to him by the disciples, talks about future events. Basically, the disciples, um, or one of them at least, makes a somewhat offhand remark to Jesus as they're, they're leave, leaving the temple about the beauty of the temple buildings, which Jesus then uses to respond to with an absolutely shocking statement about the future of the temple, that it is doomed to be destroyed. A comment which itself then elicits a deeper, even more provocative question uh, in the minds of the disciples regarding the timing of these and the signs pointing to these things. Uh, the timing of events that will take place in the future. Which they asked Jesus about a little later uh, in the evening. And Jesus' answer then takes up all of the rest of the chapter from verses, verse 5 all the way to verse 37, making up this Olivet Discourse from the Mount of Olives. Now, this fits and follows on from what we have seen in the events of, of 
Sunday and Monday and Tuesday because if you've been with us, you know this, that Jesus has been speaking about, about the, the end of the time, particularly of the temple, as the, as the center of the worship of God from, by his people. But Jesus' statement about the destruction of the temple, and here's where we start to, where it starts to cause sort of the difficulty that we see in the answer as far as understanding it. That statement of Jesus in the mind of the apostles is certainly to them a portent of something more than just the destruction of the temple. And we see that uh, in Matthew's record of this, of their question, because that, the one as Matthew records it, has more than Mark's does. In Matthew 24, verse 3, their question is, is this. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So whereas Mark's record includes only the question about the destruction of the temple, at least on the surface, Matthew tells us that they ask, and Jesus presumably answers in his answer here, something far greater in its reach, in its scope all of which were sort of swimming around in the minds of the disciples as they asked Jesus their question. Because something to the disciples, something as absolutely devastating, we, we can't grasp the, the effect that it would have on the mind of, of the disciples or of any a devout Jewish person. Uh, this a statement of Jesus regarding the destruction of the temple To the disciples, the the destruction of the temple must also mean the end of the world. That's how it would strike them. And the disciples certainly considered the, the destruction of the temple as one of the events that would accompany the end of the age and the coming of the kingdom of God. And indeed, as Jesus gives his answer, there is contained within that answer not only information about the coming destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, but things that certainly appear to pertain to the end of all things. Or to put it another way, this discourse of Jesus here in chapter 13 of Mark seems to be talking about two things, the destruction of the temple and the return of Christ on the last day, the second coming, the end of all things along with uh, persecutions and signs that, that point to those things. And indeed, that's the fact. That's what's in here. And the difficulty of this passage, part of the difficulty, the source of disagreements that are attached to this chapter is in discerning where Jesus is talking about which of those events. Now, of course, both were in the future, when Jesus made these statements. One of them, though, the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and of the temple in Jerusalem, that's only, when Jesus speaks here, that's only some 40 years in the future. While the other, well, it's been already over 2,000 years in waiting and maybe another 2,000 years away or maybe 20 minutes away. And that's the center of the the disagreement here about this passage. 
scholars and theologians and, and pastors and students of the Scripture disagree on how to answer this question. And I'm talking here about conservative scholars, uh, reformed teachers, serious, humble teachers who hold who hold a very high view of Scripture, as we all must hold, that it is breathed out by God, uh, written by men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit, and agree that, that every word in here is God's word to us, men who understand and believe that when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, men who hold to, to that, that hermeneutic or that way of interpreting Scripture, that says that Scripture is its own best interpreter and that the clear places of Scripture will shine light on the more difficult places and help to explain them and that the Word of God is our final authority. I'm talking about great teachers in the church throughout the centuries and today. These men and men who learn from them just differ. That points to just how difficult, really, this passage is. So if you read that and, and you have some difficulty saying, what exactly is he talking about? You're in good company. And what's more, some of these men that I've spoken of, these teachers, have changed their view over time. Some more than once. Uh, thinking about approaching this, it makes me think of, of my first introduction to seminary where I attended. On the day of our orientation, one of the professors was addressing us about the rigors and discipline of seminary, something that the half was not told by him. Um, and the fact, he said, that no one knows everything. And he, he said to us at that time, he said, I don't know is a valid answer. Now, I tested that theory out a few times while I was at seminary, and it never seemed to work out as well as he implied that it would. But I can say here, I do not know with assuredness the proper answer to all of the questions that we find in this chapter. Not with assuredness. And by the way, if anyone comes to you and says that, that they have Mark 13 or Matthew 24, or Luke 21, figured out, I would say be very skeptical. Either they have brought some totally preconceived notion and sort of just imported that wholesale and imposed it on the passage, and many do that, or they've not really looked carefully at this text and tried to honestly rest, wrestle with the difficulties that are here, or... They might just be lying. They might just be afraid to say, I don't know. Did you know that pastors are never commanded to know all the answers? Sometimes it seems that people have not heard that. But let me tell you, pastors are not required to know all the answers. But in looking at this passage, there are, there are four basic views of how to understand this. The first is to say that everything that Jesus is talking about from verse 5 to verse 37 is all about the destruction of the temple. 
That took place in 70 AD when the Romans under the general Titus came and besieged Jerusalem and, and destroyed the city and raised the temple to the ground. They utterly, and I mean utterly, destroyed the temple. That's one thing that Jesus is talking about that all the way through. The second view is that Jesus' statements are completely about the end of the age, the apocalypse, uh, the second coming of Christ, that this is all apocalyptic prophecy. Sometimes this chapter is referred to as the little, um, the little apocalypse. The third view is that the references to the destruction of the temple and the references to the second coming of Christ uh, go back and forth as you go through the passage. And within this view, there are different views of, of when Jesus, or when, yeah, when Jesus is here and when he's here, when he's talking about the destruction of the temple and when he's talking about the end times. Different uh, men will say, well, this passage, this part of it is talking about the, the temple. Others will say, no, he's talking about the second coming. So there's that view. And then there is that, that here in Jesus' statements, an intentional prophetic overlapping of, of, of events, sort of near and far fulfillments of some of these things that Jesus is speaking of. I believe that along with the third option, uh, that this fourth one probably gets at the right understanding. And we should note that this last approach does not signify, does not imply in any way a lack of clarity of the Scripture, but it points to the truth that prophecy, predictive prophecy, talking about things that are going to come in the future, is by its nature hard to work out, hard to understand before it's fulfilled. The prophets didn't always know. Those Old Testament prophets that wrote these prophecies that we sort of understand now, they didn't always know. I'd go so far as to suspect that they rarely knew the full story of their prophecies. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 talks about that, how they didn't know what, really what they were writing about, and they inquired into that and asked about it, and that, and that they, it was revealed to them. It says that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels even long to look. So the, the prophets weren't told everything, but they were told, as passage says, that they were really writing for you, for, for people in the future. Let me also mention here that this fourth view and this whole idea of near and far fulfillments, that's not a new thing in Mark 13. It's not unique to, to Mark 13. The same thing is seen throughout the, the Old Testament. And the idea here is that a prophecy may have and often did have a fulfillment in the short term, uh, the near fulfillment, but then it also, at the same time, because God is the one who wrote it and he can do that, uh, it also had a, a pointer to the future and would have a, a greater fulfillment farther into the future, a deeper fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment. Uh, a couple of examples. 
We're coming up to Christmas, so we'll use a Christmas example here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You'll know it as soon as I start reading it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That passage in Isaiah is about God giving a, a sign to King Ahaz of Judah that the kingdoms that were making an alliance to come against him, that they would not succeed. And there was a a near fulfillment of that prophecy that a child would be born. Uh, Otherwise, it wouldn't have been much comfort to Ahaz, would it? But there was obviously also a far fulfillment. That's the one we always think of. That fulfillment was when the angel of God came to a virgin girl named Mary and revealed to her that she would conceive a child by the Holy Spirit and that child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. A reference, of course, to the only begotten Son of God taking a human nature, coming to dwell among us, that he might save us from our sins. That he, God himself, would dwell among us. John chapter 1 says that he would pitch his tent among us. So there's a near and there's a far fulfillment to that prophecy. The same thing was true, we talked a couple weeks ago about the the Davidic covenant uh, where where the prophet Nathan came to to David and, and gave to David the promise of God to King David that, that God was making a covenant with him. It was in 2 Samuel 7, um, that he would promise him that one of his sons would come and would rule in his place on his throne and would rule over the kingdom forever. You know, the immediate reference to that was fulfilled with Solomon, his son, who ruled over David's kingdom on his throne. But there are statements within that that prophecy, that covenant, that could not possibly refer to Solomon. And we know that that covenant was pointing to the Messiah who would come. The one whom we talked about a couple of weeks ago who was David's son and David's Lord. So again, a near fulfillment and at the same time, a far fulfillment. So this is a common occurrence with prophecies, a near in time fulfillment and a greater and more important fulfillment that awaits a future time. And that is also what is going on at points in Mark chapter 13. While there are some aspects that are specifically speaking of the destruction of the temple, there are some aspects, well, there are some aspects that are more specifically speaking of of the second coming of Christ, but there are some that have a reference to both. At the same time, looking at the temple being destroyed and at the same time, looking forward to the time when Christ will return. And when we get to heaven, we'll look back on chapter 13 here and say, oh, that that part was that, and that was that, and I understand it. Like we can look back to Isaiah chapter 7 or 2 Samuel 7, and we can say, oh, that's that's what was going on. It's easier on the fulfillment side, after it's all been fulfilled, to look back and to see what's going on. And we'll we'll see that as, as well someday. But... And this is important. Let me go to the very end of the chapter here. And and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
Stay with me here, because this is important. What I do not want us to do as we go through all of this is to get lost in the trees to the extent that we miss the forest. I don't want us to get so up close and looking at every brush stroke and every bit of shading that we miss the fact that we're looking at a beautiful picture that God is painting for us. The purpose of Jesus' answer, the purpose of this this discourse is not to be obtuse, not to be vague, not to be unclear, either on Jesus' part or mine in explaining this. You know, it's interesting and very important to, to make note of this in order to properly understand what Jesus is saying here, that the purpose of this passage, which stirs the imagination and the, the, stirs the minds and the thoughts of many to the apocalypse uh, and, and occupies their mind and the mind of many trouble and troubles many souls, rather, the fact is it's meant to do the exact opposite of that. The purpose here is actually to squelch speculation about these things. When you look at the chapter, you find that while there are many time references and, and many references to events, that the major purpose, here's what you should take away this morning, the major purpose of the Olivet Discourse is to give an exhortation to spiritual preparedness. There are something like 19 commands in these verses. In fact, if you look at verse 5, where Jesus begins his answer, he starts out by saying, see to it that no one leads you astray. That's a command. That's an imperative. Something that we're commanded, exhorted, encouraged to do, or in this case, not to do. And then at the very end of the chapter, the last words are, stay awake. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Pay attention. So this whole passage is bookended by commands to action, not to speculation. You know, Paul told Timothy to do your best to present to yourself or present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. He also says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And that must be our goal, to avoid irreverent babble and to focus on what is key. And by God's grace, that will be our goal. Now, to be sure, we have to do the study, or I have to do the study, and, and, and in a clear way present it to you. And I assure you, coming to this passage, you know, I was talking to somebody this week and, and heard a story about how they... How they, how they found out and looked back at a, at a pastor whose church they attended and, and saw that when he got to Romans chapter 9, that he had just skipped it, that he didn't really do it, talk about it. And a lot of people do that. If there was ever a temptation to just sort of lightly skim over something and move on to something not as difficult, this would be it for me. Uh, but I assure you, I am praying and pray for me as we go through this difficult passage here. I, I'm cracking the books to be able to present myself to God and to you, sheep of the good shepherd, as a worker, an under-shepherd who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling God's precious word of truth. 
which is more necessary than our daily bread, which is sweeter than honey, that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now, that said, you may hear some things as we go through this passage that you may have never heard before. Now, I know I usually say that when you hear that, that should be red flags going off in your mind. But the reason that you may not have ever heard some of these things before is not because they're new, because they're not, but because American evangelism or evangelicalism has so imbibed and committed itself to one specific view of this chapter that it's possible that you've never heard any of the other ones. That's part of why it gets so confused in here. But I encourage you as we go through this that you always be good Bereans. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to take a few more minutes here and dip our toe into the text just a little bit, just to give us a start. Uh, Look at chapter 13 and verses 1 to 4. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus has been, we've seen, in the court of the Gentiles uh, for a good deal of this Tuesday, dealing with various confrontations with the Sanhedrin. Then he moved to the court of the women where the, the treasury was and was watching the then put the, their offerings in and commented on this widow who put everything she had in. He'd also been there the, the previous Sunday in the temple after coming to Jerusalem. And then the next day, Monday, he came in and cleared the temple of those who bought and sold within its confines and said to them, it is, is it not written, my house is to be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers? Well, now we have in our record that Jesus finally, at the end of this day, leaves the temple. He will not return to it. But as he and his disciples leave, through the court of the Gentiles, out the the eastern gate, one of the disciples, perhaps attracted by the glint of the sun off the, the gold or the marble of the temple, turns and takes note of its beauty and points it out to Jesus. And indeed, the temple in Jerusalem was a beautiful structure. We read of the original temple's beauty a little bit. It pales in comparison to this one. To say that it's a beautiful structure is is a gross understatement. You know, the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of Yahweh, originally built by Solomon, planned by David, built by Solomon, We read that description of it this morning. It was destroyed then by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army in 586 B.C., rebuilt later under Zerubbabel after the return to Jerusalem from the exile. And this second temple, Zerubbabel's temple then, was greatly, and I mean greatly, expanded and remodeled by the Roman King Herod the Great beginning in about 19 or 20 B.C., with work continuing all the way until 64 A.D. Herod the Great was known for many things, but known for his great building projects, Masada, 
was, was one of his projects. But perhaps none was more magnificent than the temple in Jerusalem, that he expanded greatly, that he adorned, that he just took on um, and, and used thousands and thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of man-hours to, to build. And we get much of our information about it, about this temple, Herod's temple it's referred to, uh, from the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived during that time. Uh, the site of the entire complex where the temple sets uh, was expanded from its previous size to 35 acres. Um, the, the, where are we at here? The Costco property up here, the whole property there is about 24 acres. So think then of how huge this, the temple was. Some of the stones that made up the temple and its retaining wall were 60 feet long, limestone, 11 feet high, 8 feet deep, and, so, and dry fit together such that you can't even get a paper between them in places. And then Josephus says this, Now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not covered with gold, they were exceeding white. White marble and gold was the exterior of the temple. And even though the Jews had no love for Herod, a later rabbi noted regarding the temple, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. And as this disciple points out this remarkable edifice to, to Jesus, surely they all would have turned to look. And the only thing more remarkable than the sight of this structure is Jesus' attitude towards it, his response. He looks at it, as I said at the beginning, and delivers what surely must have been tremendously shocking. He said, do you see this, these great buildings? the whole temple complex. He says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As beautiful as this may be, and it is beautiful, it was beautiful, it was grand, Jesus said, its time is over. Jesus' clearing of the temple that day, we talked about it, that foretold it. His cursing of the, the fig tree and the subsequent withering of that fig tree illustrated it. And now Jesus states it as clearly as it could be stated. Its time of, of centrality in the religion of the Jews is over and the very existence is about to come to an end. Not only will it be deserted, not only will it be abandoned or looted, damaged, defaced, desecrated, but literally it will be raised to the ground, not one stone on another. 
we'll see later that that came absolutely, literally true. And perhaps this comment stunned them into silence for a time because verse 3 then picks up after they've left the temple, they've, they've gone down through the east gate and then down through the Kidron Valley there on the east side, up the other side onto the Mount of Olives. A journey that itself, I won't take time to, to speak of the great symbolism just in that journey, but it's great. Ask me about it after service. After a time for reflection, uh, a thought, you know, as they sat there on the mountain, Mark notes opposite the temple, four of the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question uh, that we have in chapter, in verse 3. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things shall be accomplished? That is what Jesus is going to answer in the rest of the Olivet Discourse. Let us wonder at the work of God. I mean, this is a natural question that they ask. They're curious, what is God doing? What do these developments mean? What are you talking about, Jesus? How is it that these things can change? Don't we wonder the same things as we look at what's going on? What is God doing today? What do the developments in our world mean? What are we to make out of wars and rumors of wars in far-flung places, unrest in our own nation? What do these things mean? How should a Christian respond to them? Are these harbingers of the end? Or are they just the way of a fallen world? Well, Jesus has answers for the disciples and for us. And we'll begin to look at what he has to say next week. But we can be sure that it's good. That all God does is good because God is good. And thankfully, He is in control. Let's pray. Father, we we pray simply, Lord, that you would continue to, to impress these things upon us. We pray that you, as we look forward to going through this passage, that as you do uh, whatever passage we're going through, Lord, that you would bless our time, that you would teach us, that your spirit would instruct us. We pray that you would especially help us to be cautious and to be clear as we look at these things. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for this time that we have had. In Jesus' name, amen.